Their conversation is like a gently wicked dance. Sound meets sound, curtsies, shimmies, and retires. Another sound enters, but is upstaged by still another. The two circle each other and stop. Sometimes their words move in lofty spirals. Other times they take strident leaps, and all of it is punctuated with warm-pulsed laughter, like the throb of a heart made of jelly. The edge, the curl, the thrust of their emotions is always clear to Frida and me. We do not, cannot, know the meanings of all their words, for we are nine and ten years old. So we watch their faces, their hands, their feet, and listen for truth in timber. Your shelf for mine Talking sophisticated topics all the time Your shelf for mine Kick back, relax, crack a book, unwind at your shelf And welcome to your shelf or mine. I'm Becky Standall, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. And I'm Austin Brigden, Administrative Assistant at the Longview Public Library. Welcome to our September 2022 Our Shelf Challenge podcast episode where we will be talking about the work of Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison. I gotta say, let's let's start out, Becky, talking about like seems like a lot of these episodes we talk about what our background is mm-hmm. with the author in question. So, like, what's your experience prior to this month with Toni Morrison? I grew up seeing Toni Morrison on the Oprah Winfrey Show, oh. which is probably the thing that I knew her most from most of my life. And I didn't read anything of hers, I don't think, until after college, and I read Beloved. Mm-hmm. And until very recently, that was the only work of hers that I had read. I enjoyed it in that I recognize it's a very, like, you know, important book and it's beautifully written. It was very difficult to read. It's a tough, it's a tough book and I have not read it since then. You mean difficult, emotionally difficult? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's also intellectually it, a difficult. It's just, yeah. Yeah, both of those. She's not an author writer that that lets you off the hook. I don't think the reader, at least not in the bit I've I've read. Yeah, I don't have an exciting Toni Morrison backstory that involves Oprah or anything. Well, it's not like I. But I, uh, I saw her in person on Oprah. <laughs> oh, Oprah's well, picked like four of her books for her book club. Oprah's been yeah. Oprah's been a big proponent. I mean, obviously of of a number of writers, uh, but. Sounds like Toni Morrison in particular. Yeah. A lot of people must know her because of Oprah, mm-hmm. which is great. No, I didn't have much experience. You know, I feel like um, pretty much if you're a bookish person at all in this country, you're probably aware of Toni Morrison. I think part of the reason that we picked her for September is that she's a a very um, frequently banned and controversial and hated upon author. <laughs> and I think at the time when we were putting our list of authors together, um, her books were like really in the news. Well, there had been that, you know, and I'm going to maybe get the facts wrong, governor's race on the East Coast, I think it was Virginia, where one of her books, maybe it was Beloved, 
or maybe mm-hmm. that was was it's funny that a book that was written so long ago was brought up as this uh what do you call it a sort of lightning rod in this race but it was into uh, political effect it turned out because the candidate who did that won but um so i i think i was always aware of her as an author that that faced a lot of that and as um someone just a I watched interviews, you know, and things, and she has this real charisma and this sort of gravity, you know, Nobel laureate, you know, I, I was aware of her, but I'd not read anything. And, you know, I like to be real confessional, so I'll say at the outset of this episode that I did not finish anything, anything, but I, I started a lot of Toni Morrison books and uh, Toni Morrison content, so it was kind of like a nice, I, I dipped into the world of Toni Morrison but I did not finish anything. I also not finished anything new. Anything new. You at least read Beloved. Yeah, but it's been so long ago. I feel like I couldn't speak to it very well. Yeah. Well, what did you dip into for this conversation? So I started to read The Bluest Eye, and I am about halfway through. I'm really enjoying it, and... I didn't not finish it for any reason other than time constraints. (laughs) Like it's not like it was, it's not like Moby Dick where it's just a struggle to read. It's very. Oh my gosh. It was the Melville episode was worth it to me for the relief I felt when I got to stop (laughs) it. Oh my God. But how, how do you think it compares this reading to that reading of beloved? Do you find this book more enjoyable? Yes, absolutely. It's also like, Beloved is about, you know, a haunting. It's like a ghost story and you don't learn about what the haunting is all about until the end of the book. And this book, it's more straightforward. It's a story about some girls growing up and the stuff that happens to them and their... Their their sort of community in orbit. Yeah. It actually reminds me a bit of like House on Mango Street Mm. in in that it's like an adult book about children, about Mm. young girls growing up and the... It doesn't like shy away from the really terrible, violent, often parts of being a girl growing up. You know, it's not safe a lot of the time. Mm. But they also have, you know, these great relationships, these sisters. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's funny too. Like, it's not just, you know. I also read The Bluest Eye or started to. I am 77% through, and I know that because I'm listening to it on Libby little ad there but um, which was a different I don't usually do that and we can get into the audio the auditory experience of Toni Morrison later but The Bluest Eye was her first book for those who don't know it was um, published in 1970 probably one of her most banned books most controversial books yeah I think um, The Bluest Eye and Beloved the two most frequently banned books of hers but also I think in America. In America. Yeah. yeah. And I think the bluest eye may be more because the main characters are young teens. Yeah. And so people that age read the book. Yeah. And it's, you know, what you're talking about, Beloved, I and, and versus this book, and I haven't read Beloved, but this is also a difficult book. I wouldn't say it's not di- difficult emotionally. She, like you said, she doesn't shy away from some real frank... A real frank picture, I think. And it amazes me in some ways that this was written in 1970 because a real frank picture of people and and gender and, you know, how people actually relate to the world. 
but particularly, you know, there are pretty vivid depictions of sexual abuse. Um, and men are a real, you mentioned the young girls, men are a real most atmospheric menace. menace in the book. You can feel it. And boys too. And boys. But maleness is sort of just this this menace that hangs over the book. Charlie Breedlove in particular. She's really good at names. So let's let's give a little background on the book. So we started but did not finish a documentary about Toni Morrison, which is... Um, it's called ma- The Pieces I Am. Pieces I Am. It's mostly her interviews yeah. with her. And she talked, and I think she was talking specifically about this book, where she says she lays it all out there, like what the, you know, what the happens at the end, of, right at the beginning. It's on the first page. Yeah. And so, you know, if you keep reading it, it's either because you want to see it play out or you just want to enjoy her writing yeah. in the language. And I think that was really cool. Yeah. Did you want to to take a moment and read yeah, from I was the gonna, opening? Not this opening. So she opens uh, The Bluest Eye with this like... Oh, um, it's not a nursery rhyme. No, it's like from a primer, like a Dick and Jane primer. Yeah. Um, and it's repeated throughout the book like a kind of... I don't know what the poetic device is, but it changes subtly throughout mm-hmm. as she's repeating it. It's kind of like a contrast, I think, to the dysfunction and the, like the reality. Like she reads, she starts out reading mm-hmm. this very like, oh, you know, dad's so strong and mom's yeah. happy Here and everybody's, yeah. It is pretty. Here is the family, mother, father, Dick and Jane. Yeah. That's a little bit of a contrast with what follows. Yeah. So how it starts after that, she writes, Quiet as it's kept, there were no marigolds in the fall of 1941. We thought at the time that it was because Piccola was having her father's baby that the marigolds did not grow. (laughs) That's a heck of an opening. Yeah. And you know what's? I didn't realize until we watched the documentary and, you know, they're flashing lots of images of her amazing, you know, the vintage book covers. Mm-hmm. The original book cover, not only does it put it out there very early, what happens, the original book cover actually began, the text began on the cover. So that mm-hmm. whole paragraph and maybe a few more were just started on the cover and then you proceeded into the book, which is also kind of a cool, unusual thing. Yeah, so you know what you're getting into from the first page. I think both that sen- the first was two sentences that I read are lovely to read. They're well written, um, and it's also like whoa. What a what a quiet as it's kept. Mm-hmm. There were no marigolds in the fall of, of 1941. 1941. It's such a ugh, such a sentence, right? And uh, you're intrigued. Mm-hmm. So. Picola Breedlove, another of those great names. She's one of the central characters. She's the one having her father's baby. But I think more than her, at least in the portion of the book I read, it's the two sisters, Frida and Claudia. Claudia, And it, and it seems like a, there's a lot from Claudia's viewpoint. Mm-hmm. She does, the characters are so vivid, you know, and so well, like, like you said, there's a lot of... You know, there's a lot of difficult things in here and there's danger, but it's also funny. I think like about the portrait that she makes of their mother, of Frida and uh, Claudia's mother. <laughs> their mother, so, it's so, she's so good at getting the idiosyncrasies of people. So her mother has this habit of like, do you remember that scene? She's like complaining. 
but like by herself in the kitchen, just sort of like complaining because Piccola has come to live with them because everything's blown up at the Breedlove house and they've been scattered to the four winds and they've kind of like taken in Piccola and she's drunk. The girls offer her milk in a Shirley Temple cup, which is a whole nother like soliloquy about Shirley Temple and the sort of the white ideal. But, Mm -hmm. but in any case, she's drunk. What is it? Like three. She's drunk all the milk. She's drunk all the milk. And, but the mother doesn't directly accuse anybody or never directly like confronts it, but like loudly says as she's doing stuff, like people be drinking up all the milk. What do they think? I don't know. You know, she goes on and on. And these girls are sort of elsewhere in the house just listening. And it's totally a performance, right? She's not going to talk to them. She's not going to say Piccola's name. They're not going to talk to her, but everybody knows what's going on. And the girls are just like sitting there like kind of waiting like well we have to leave the house because this is you know. they're very weary they're like yeah oh and then that segues into a great one of the funniest scenes i think i read where they're trying to decide what to go do <laughs> yeah and she's like do you want to go next door and listen to the greeks curse do you want to go peek in the garbage cans they like come up with all these funny <laughs> like kid things to do do you want to go look at the borders dirty magazines yeah. and then one of them is like oh we'll make fudge or something it's like i'm not going in that kitchen yeah and they're like oh yeah you're right and like there's another time later on where they're like should we tell mama about this thing and they're like no we don't want to listen to her complain about it <laughs> even though they probably should have said something no and and later. they she really captures the moodiness of mm-hmm. of the mother how she like slides from she'll be singing to the complaining but also about how these children's lives teeter so precipitously between sort of fun and innocence and and then danger. You know, they love this border, this older gentleman. They love him, right? And then there's a scene where you really think it curdles for them. They're like, oh. And it is sort of like an awakening to some of the menace of men. Um, Yeah. That was just the part that I was at the last. Oh, right. Yeah, the revelations about Mr. Uh, the Border, the man who lives in their house. Yeah. And it really starts out painting him as like he's very nice. Everybody loves him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, they just realize that that's yeah, not. Yeah, he assaults one of the girls. Yeah, and he bribes them to leave and then has um, prostitutes come to the house. Yeah, he had the prostitutes come and then after, like, yeah. later... I think also the stuff with the prostitutes is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Like like her and relationship. They live like above the storefront where Pecola's, where the Breedloves live. They live in a storefront. Yeah, the, Pecola, the Breedloves live in a storefront. And I don't think you've gotten to this part, but like the book casts back into the lives of Polly Breedlove and Charlie Breedlove and kind of like gives some of their backstory and like why they are the way they are. Polly Breedlove is this really interesting character who she's in like this terrible marriage to Charlie Breedlove. But there's like real love there deep down. You know, it comes from a real love when it started. And she works as a servant in a white person's house, cooking, taking care of the children, everything. And I don't think you've probably gotten to, there's a scene where they go visit her in her workplace. Yes. And that scene is powerful when it happens. There's a scene, they go in, they end up, there's this pie cobbler actually, and they end up 
disastrously tipping it onto the floor. And that scene is powerful when it happens, but it becomes even more powerful later because later you get Polly's backstory and you understand like what that scene means to her because she does this thing psychologically where she sort of flees into working for these white people and she she kind of I don't know sublimates it in her mind where it's like it's her house she's very proud of all this stuff and as her home life deteriorates as she she gives up kind of on taking care of the store and their children and everything she puts more and more pride and more and more of like her identity in this beautiful place where she goes to work and of course it's tragic because none of it's hers and yeah, well, and then in in that scene, too, she sends her daughter and then the two friends away because they've tipped over the pie and, like, have ruined it. She sends them away with the washing to hang it up to dry. And it's comfort, like, the, the white girl who's who's been very upset by these other, these brown girls. And, yeah, you know, like that, like, the white girl is her daughter. Right. And even though the black girls notice that the white girl calls her Polly. Yeah. Which they would never dare because it's a much more formal relationship with adults. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so there's that slight. Yeah. And then we've already had this story of Pacola's real self-loathing about her skin color and her eye Eyes, color. Yeah. Um, and her obsession with these like blue-eyed, blonde, you know, Shirley Temple. Types. Types and dolls and images that, you know, she's been taught is the ideal yeah girl and claudia's claudia's a more critical voice at that you know she's sort of observing all of this and and i you know you shouldn't do this but i sort of imagine her more like the voice of morrison a little bit she's like commenting on that Mm -hmm. because she don't get it she's sort of and and she she kind of hints at that that a black girl like her will come to an accommodation with the white ideal, but she isn't there yet. It enrages her. It enrages her. She doesn't like to see Shirley Temple dance with Bojangles, because the black man, because that's her father. What's he doing dancing with that white girl? And I just thought, wow, that was so yeah, and well done. She gets the psychology so right of and, everybody. Yeah, and her narrative voice is a little in the future. So she's like looking back with some more adult wisdom as she's telling the story. Right. Um, and she says early on, she's like, I eventually got there where I hated myself just as much. Right, 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 right. But when I was little. Like, she didn't see it yet. Or she, she hadn't She hadn't made that accommodation. She hadn't bought into it. Yeah. Yeah. No, the psychology is just so deep. She's so good. She's so good. Toni Morrison is good, you know? I mean, she's going <laughs> places. But... Um, no, I know. Toni Morrison passed away a few years ago. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible book. And then it is on the sentence level, just be- yeah. very, very beautiful. When we were watching that documentary last night, which I had seen before some time ago. It's available on Hulu. It has been on Canopy. It has been on it Canopy. It's it's not right now. sometimes on PBS because I think it was part of their American Masters series. She talks and I can really see it. I, so I read a good portion of Bluest Eye and also dipped in almost for comparison. I wanted to see what a different novel was like to Song of Solomon, which I was really enjoying too. She talks about a lot about sort of wanting to write. She wants everybody to read her books, but she doesn't explain things to white people. She felt like a lot of black books were sort of like writing about black identity and culture with a, a white gaze. Yeah, she she talked about how the assumption of the narration is that the reader is white. 
Yeah. And it was really interesting. That documentary, after having read some of her stuff, it was really, it's a really well-made documentary. And they talk about like the reviews of The Bluest Eye, which were not altogether kind. I mean, some a lot of people loved it. Sula too. And Sula, where they they kind of accuse her of being like provincial and small because she's writing about black, unapologetically, you know, about black people. And, and she does the idiosyncrasies of a culture so well. You know what I mean? She does the idiosyncrasies of people, the way people talk, the little nicknames people give, all of that. But she does it with no, she's not giving any quarter to sort of the white onlooker. And so they say, well, you know, she's real talented, but, you know, she's going to have to break out into the real world at some point. And which is so telling. But at the time, it seems like a lot of reviewers completely unselfconsciously would make that criticism. Oh, yeah, she's so talented when she when she starts really writing about stuff outside of these black communities. And she didn't do it. No, she, she like did. really held her ground. And look, uh, look how, who came out on top. The, the documentary talks a lot, too, about her her work as an editor for Random House. Yeah. And the influence that she's had on literature. Yeah. Like, since she's did that. The editing stuff was so cool mm-hmm. to me. I dabbled and did an internship with a publishing house and stuff. And so I saw a little bit of that world. And I had no idea until I saw that documentary. Like, And I think a lot of people maybe don't. I don't how incredible her editing career was. And, you know, people talk about literary citizens, mm-hmm. certain people who, beyond doing their own work, just do a lot for the the art the, and the, the community of people. She really did that at Random House. And then I think continued to, to do that um, as a writer. I was very interested in intellectual freedom and all kinds of stuff. But, but yeah. Um, and I think to really demonstrate it to the industry that books that centered like black people would sell to black people and to white people and you didn't have to like water it down or exactly exactly and she was doing both like and it sounds like she was a powerful editor and and it kind of talks about you know she she fought to gain that position you know and to gain the influence she had and both uh, helping sort of like emerging voices, somebody like Tony Cade Pambara and Gail Jones, Lucille Clifton, the poet Lucille Clifton. And then also doing like kind of like, I don't want to say celebrity memoirs, but kind of yeah. Muhammad Ali's book and uh, championing like black public figures to write books, inventing Angela Davis to write her autobiography. It's a really incredible. Mm-hmm. And I And I also think, I think personally I admire somebody Though I don't think it's possible for everybody who manages, even if for only for a time, to like marry two things. So she was writing and being an editor, and those two things seemed like they were feeding each other. And I just really admire that. They talk a lot in the documentary about her time, like how, how'd she do it? She had two kids, she was a single mother. Well, and she talked too about, so she was a teacher for like the first, I don't know, chunk of her Significant yeah. chunk. Because she was not an... Like Wonderkind, like or, yeah. she published her first book at 39. Yeah. So she felt like she had the experience to kind of separate her own writing from you know, the editorial work that she was doing for other people because she had not published until, you know, she was almost 40 and also because she had spent so much time as a teacher. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think she says this in that documentary and then someone else in the interview quotes her because she remembered that being so powerful to her talking about writing for the white gaze or she talks about invisible man yeah and like she says invisible to who she talked about frederick Douglass Uh too where she she reads frederick Douglass and she can feel him holding back Mm -hmm. um and saying what did she say 
things too terrible to relate. He says that a lot. And that was not her policy. Nope. She relates them. I'll tell you, in bluest eye, she relates them. And you just imagine that too. I mean, it's one thing too to read the bluest eye in this moment when I think there is more exposure of, of some of the things she's talking about. Sure. Not enough, but more. And then you try to remember that she published this in 1970. And you think what the atmosphere of 1970 was. I think it makes this book all the more, you're just like, oh my gosh. The world this book emerged into was not I'm sh- friendly to it. Uh, but it was also a big success. Success enough, I think she published The Blue Eye with somebody, kind of like quietly. Yeah. And then Random House was like, what are you doing publishing with somebody else? <laughs> They're, They're like, like no, what? no, we'll publish your and books. Then, and then the rest of her career was, I think, Random House. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit too about her voice, her yeah, audio. She has such a great voice. Oh my gosh. The documentary briefly talks about how when she was at Howard as an undergrad, she did some drama and it shows. Yeah. So she's got this real mm. um mm. like a soul kind of a soulful, almost like sultry type uh-huh. of like lilting voice. like and I was listening to some and I listened to, I started to listen to something of hers that was published after she died and so it was read the audiobook by you know some actress who does a lot of audiobooks and I was like Meh. so I switched over to a uh, home which she reads herself and it's such a difference and yeah. I said like I think to me the difference is listening to it with someone else reading it it sounds like they're reading a book and listening to Toni Morrison, it sounds like she's telling you a story. And she is just like, her pacing is so good when she's reading. She just really like takes her time. And it's so good. And I it picked is. Home to listen to because it's uh, short. <laughs> <laughs> but I still didn't finish it. But it is really good. And like one of her later books, don't know when it was published. Uh-huh. But it's about this family, and it kind of changes perspectives. But it starts, um, actually starts with his brother and sister when they're young. They had, like, snuck off through the fields to go look at these horses below the grass so that or corn so that people couldn't see them. And then they're coming back after seeing the horses and stumble on these men burying a black man. And it's a brother, and he's older, and his younger sister, and... That kind of like you know, haunts the narrative a little bit. And then it goes in the next section and that little, that, that older brother is grown up and he's returned from war. He was in Korea and he's landed, I don't remember where, but he's trying to get back to Georgia because his sister is sick. But he doesn't have, I think he might be in LA when they start, but he doesn't have money. He like wakes up in some institution and he can't remember why, how he got there. And he has to kind of like slowly make his way back to her and then it goes back and forth like there's some of her perspective from like right after he enlisted when she was a young teenager and then it talks about their parents and their situation because they had fled from Texas when he was really small and she was actually born on the road and they had to live with their grandfather and his kind of like mean new wife kind of like an evil step mother figure but she was their grandmother who always said that like that was a bad omen for her to be born on on the road and she kind of held it against her always even though she was just a baby and nothing to do with anything so the different things that happened to them and I'm not finished yet but it is 
good and that there's like some you know you know at the beginning that this little sister and they're grown now that she's sick and you know you get these hints about something that might have been happened to her or done to her and the big reveal hasn't happened yet but I'm pretty sure I know what it is and it's just terrible but she reads it so good and it's just beautiful too yeah beautiful and terrible yeah yeah no she's got an incredible voice and I I respect a lot that she she made a point she really insisted on doing because a lot of there's a lot of writers that don't insisted on doing her books um and actually and a lot of writers who probably shouldn't you know read their own oh sure that's a separate deal but some definitely should and and she's one of them and but it's a lot of work and actually uh, there's a writer i love rachel kodziganza who writes a lot of she's written a lot of profiles and stuff and she wrote a profile of um tony morrison toward the end of her life and um a big the occasion of the profile is like she's working on recording paradise one of her later books she insisted on doing it even as it became more difficult because it involved you know hours and hours sitting in this little soundproof box reading the books um but she would in she wasn't gonna give that up you know i think she's in her upper 80s when when in this profile and i'll read a little piece of it later and and i think it gives a really good sense of sort of the the gravity and charisma she had sort of as a person but um, yeah, the audio, they're definitely um, wonderful to listen to as audiobooks, and they are unabridged. There is actually watch out because you can scroll through Libby and some, there are some abridgments. What? Yep. Why do they even do that? I don't know. People are busy. I Maybe I'm just like full of it. I don't know, but I'm just like. If you abridge it, it ain't that. Bu- it ain't the book anymore. <laughs> I know. I saw. I saw one, and I was like, four hours. I was like, that's not right, because that's too like, short for a like, Toni Morrison book. <laughs> well, Home is four hours, I think, but it's that's a short book. But this other one, I don't remember what it was. I'd seen it earlier, the unabridged version. They had them both, and it was like fourteen hours. And I was like, how do you get ten hours out of this book? Well, you just shouldn't. It should be illegal. I know I, I I you know I think you laugh but a while back I started listening to Armistead Maupin and for whatever reason Armistead Maupin is we talked about in June y'all will probably remember um Armistead Maupin is another person who reads his books really wonderfully and you could only find abridgments and I was just like cuz I so I had I had read one of his books and then I went back to listen to it on audio and I thought gosh this doesn't seem the same it wasn't. Yeah. I'm just going on the record against audiobook abridgments yeah. for anybody who cares. I think especially when that's the only, like, they don't ever do the full one and they just do an abridgment. Yeah. I don't know if the full one was available. The weird thing to me about Armistead Maupin doing that is his books aren't, like, long. Do you know what I mean? Like, they're not exceedingly long books. Actually, to sit down and read them, they read pretty fast. So I'm, I'm, I was kind of surprised. Home was published in t- 2012. Do you have anything else you want to say about Toni Morrison's voice? Her, uh, her like the voice uh, of a generation. Voice of a generation. This has been really good. I'll say again that you know it's sort of like I think somebody who looms large in the culture mm-hmm. and literary, particularly in the literary culture, but who I had never read, you know, or I'd heard her speak a little that sort of thing. It's nice to really dip into that, and I think I'll continue. Mm-hmm. Definitely finish The Bluest Eye, but probably Song of Solomon. Um, there's a great wealth of 
books. She wrote 11 novels, a lot of nonfiction and speeches and stuff. Yeah, and she also did some children's books. She this one series I don't remember the name of. And then I found in our collection this book she wrote called Remember the Story to School Integration, which is like mostly like a photographic history about segregation integration with these just like amazing black and white photos of the time that are set to a first person like an essay kind of or no just like a like a narration of like we didn't get to go to school and Mm. you know and a lot of the you know powerful images that people know from like the little rock nine and stuff but lots of other ones too that's cool i didn't i had no idea she did that yeah she did a lot of stuff. Yeah. There's a lot you could say. I mean, I feel like I could sit here and talk about the bluest eye <laughs> for a long time. Just a remarkable writer, remarkable voice, very driven by the sound of language, I think. You know, she kind of talked about her writing process in that documentary a little bit. Mm-hmm. It felt like, it seems like it's a very intuitive kind of like, she starts out and follows the language and the, her it curiosity. Like she just wrote everything out long ago. Yeah. I don't know if she no, at one point, later. They talked to some other people in that documentary well, I don't know. The image of her in the documentary writing longhand is pretty l- later in her life, but she t- they talk to other people in the documentary, other writers, um, but they also talk to like a woman who was like a secretary at Random House and talked about her bribing them with her carrot cake. Her carrot cake is talked about quite a bit in the documentary. The best carrot cake you will ever have eaten. She puts a lot of carrots in it, but they uh, she talks about... She has that line where she's like, maybe my sister can do good enough carrot cake but really no one else is as good as me. They just don't put enough carrots in it. Yeah. So, but she was an editor and she like asked those secretaries for a favor and like bribed them with carrot cake to type up some pages for her. And it turned out it was the bluest eye. Yeah. She seems like she would have been like a cool lady to be friends with. Or Yeah. I kind of want to continue, you know, there's always something else we're getting ready to read for the library. So I feel like mo- we've got to move on. But there was another documentary um, that seemed like a real like appreciation of her from friends. Mm-hmm. Um, that one is on Canopy. There also is a book coming out, a memoir one of her friends wrote about about her. Chloe is in the title because that was actually her her I think that given is name. Out. But yeah, it sounds like she was a pretty incredible person to know. There was also this book that I did download as an audiobook, did not start. That looked really cool. Called the Tony Morrison Book Club. Let me pull that up so I can say like. Oh, that's right. We're always so ambitious, right? I got piles of Toni Morrison at home. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to drive for three hours, so I could probably listen to 40 hours of audiobooks um, on my drive. I could not. Spoiler alert. The book is called The Toni Morrison Book Club, and it sounds like a novel, but it's actually a group memoir that follows um, four friends who use Toni Morrison novels to just have conversations and it is written by judah bennett winifred brown claude cassandra jackson and piper kendricks williams and i just thought that that looked really interesting too and um maybe someday i'll get get to it yeah that does sound interesting i tried to read a book about well it wasn't a group memoir but it was a memoir about i thought it was going to be about a book club and it ended up being more about like just the one person but i really like the idea you know, this idea of like a memoir that's based around a book club. Yeah. Did you want to read from that essay? Oh, sure. This is just a little bit of the opening of that Rachel Kodzigonza essay. 
They're all like at her house. She's recording one of her books. Not too long ago, Toni Morrison sat in the small kitchen attached to the studio where she was recording the audiobook for her newest novel, God Help the Child, telling a room full of strangers stories that I will never forget. The studio, a small refurbished barn in Katona, New York, was more than a hundred years old, but only a few rustic touches remained, like a sliding barn door and knotty pine floors. A solid kitchen table had been laid with fresh fruits, muffins, and tins of jam. Beams of sunlight reflected off the blindingly white snow outside the glass window. A young woman from Random House kept mentioning her sunglasses, how it was bright enough to wear them inside. Everyone giggled at her nervous chatter, but they seemed to be mostly laughing at her brave attempt to make small talk in the presence of Toni Morrison. The only person not bothered by the glare and the room's awkward giddiness was Morrison herself, who sat at the head of the table in a thin black linen caftan, a wool beret, and with a sizable diamond ring on one hand. Morrison wears her age like an Elizabethan regent or a descendant of Othello via Lorraine, Ohio. Long before we met, I read that she could be impervious at times, coquettish at others. What was evident that day in Katona was that had she so much as lifted a finger, every person in the room— the studio's director and his engineer, her PR person from Knopf, her publisher and two young women from the audiobooks division of Random House, would have stopped what they were doing to ask if they could assist. Not because she required it, but because the unspoken consensus was that the person who produced the 11 novels that Morrison has written, the person those books came out of, was deserving of the fuss. Nice. Yeah, I don't know. I thought that that's a really good profile. It's called... Um, the Radical Vision of Toni Morrison, and it's in the New York Times Magazine. It's just a really good portrait of her. When was that published? That was published in 2015, April of 2015. Okay. And yeah, so there's a lot out there for you all to explore. If you haven't already, read some Toni Morrison, listen, watch the documentary, participate in the R Shelf Challenge on Beanstack. We've we've seen a lot of you guys participating and it's really great to see. It's not too late. You can go back and do previous months. You can catch up all in one month, whatever you want to do. We got a few months of the year left. We're heading into October and we've got a special guest in October too. I'm very excited about it. Uh, Ursula Le Guin is our author for the month and we are going to be joined by the incomparable James Newkirk. You all probably know James from the desk. He's going to join us. He's a Le Guin lover. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm going to read Cat Wings. Nice. I've already... I'll try to read other stuff too. Cat Wings is like I could read them half hour. I've already brought home a bunch of books. Mm-hmm. I got. I think I checked all the nonfiction out because I love her nonfiction. But I think I'm also going to try to read The Wizard of Earthsea. Mm-hmm. I'll start with that. That's good. Don't overpromise yourself. There's also a really good documentary about her that came out just a few years ago and there's a podcast now i was just reminded by a, a one a lcc person that tin house books in portland has a crafting with ursula um podcast um where different writers that knew her or influenced by her books come on and talk about elements of craft through the lens of ursula k Le Guin. that sounds great yeah so thank you, Austin. Thank you, listeners. Uh, you've been listening to your shelf. Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Austin. Bye-bye. Bye. 
Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery.